Hey, public health people. Welcome to the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap Podcast. I'm your host, Domicella Grace Calhoun, MPH. This week, I'm summarizing the February 19th, 2021 weekly report. Let's get started. Article 1, we're talking about HIV care in Black people. We already know that Black people account for way too many HIV infections. For example, in 2018, Black people accounted for 43% of all HIV infections in the U.S. 43%. They only make up 13% of the U.S. population. So they're bearing a hugely disproportionate burden of HIV in America, which is one of the obvious reasons why we need to be focusing HIV treatment efforts on Black people. But Black people where exactly? Access to HIV care varies by where you live. So what areas are most important to focus on? So in their study, Lyons and colleagues looked at care outcomes for Black people with HIV and specifically looked at differences between rural, urban, and metropolitan areas. The results? Black people living in rural areas had a greater percentage of late-stage HIV diagnoses compared to urban and metropolitan areas. So late-stage HIV diagnosis means a greater chance that a person with HIV becomes a person with AIDS, which is really bad. Now, regarding linkage to care, meaning like actually referring somebody to the right care, all areas, rural, urban, and metropolitan, had similar percentages of Black people being linked to care. But the percentage of viral suppression within six months of diagnosis was lower in rural and urban areas compared to metropolitan areas. So according to the NIH, if a person is taking their HIV medication daily as prescribed, their viral load should drop to an undetectable level within six months. So the fact that rural and urban areas had lower percentages of viral suppression within six months could reflect a lack of actually accessing HIV medication and might be suggestive of lower access to care overall in these areas. The implication of this study is that in order to reduce disparities in HIV outcomes, we really need to focus on early diagnosis and prompt treatment of Black people with HIV, especially in rural and urban areas, but really especially in rural areas. In Article 2, we're looking at lupus in San Francisco Asians and Latinos. Lupus is an autoimmune disease that causes organ inflammation, and the symptoms can really run the gamut of mild to extremely severe. We understand that minority populations are at higher risk for lupus and severe lupus outcomes. Yet, data for minority groups, particularly Asians and Latinos, is lacking. This kind of stuff makes me wonder, like, how many health disparities are existing purely in data that we aren't fully aware of just because the disparity is in the data itself? Probably a lot. Anyway, in a UCSF study, Gianfrancesco and colleagues helped bridge this data disparity by calculating estimates of mortality of Asians and Latinos with lupus. And the researchers found that during the 2007 to 2017 study period, the lupus mortality rate in Asian and Latino people was four times higher than the lupus mortality rate in the general population. For Latinas, the mortality rate was six times higher than the general population. Six times higher. That means that for every one person in the general population who dies from lupus, six Latinas die from lupus. I mean, that's a huge disparity. 
So the public health implication here is that to reduce mortality rates, primary care providers and rheumatologists need to work together to ensure that people with lupus receive a timely diagnosis and appropriate treatments. And in order to reach those at a higher risk, like Asian people and Latinos and Latinas, public health campaigns should create and implement culturally tailored messaging about recognizing early signs of lupus and the importance of seeking medical care. Article 3, Telehealth During COVID. In this study, researchers examined trends in telehealth usage by looking at data from 245 health centers across the United States. The largest increase in telehealth use was in April of 2020, aka the early stages of the pandemic. And this makes sense because this is when everything was shut down, so of course telehealth is going to increase. But what's interesting is that over time, as COVID cases began to decrease, telehealth visits decreased too. And the reasons for this are pretty unclear, but it could be because the public kind of started feeling a little bit more safer about in-person visits since cases were going down. Or maybe by the time the cases were going down, people were like, I'm sick of telehealth. I want to go see my doctor in person. It's pretty unclear as to why telehealth utilization went down as COVID cases went down, but there are some, you know, plausible explanations. So health centers actually reported the lowest average telehealth visits in the South and in rural areas. And this could be because of unique barriers that rural areas and the South face, like limited healthcare providers and limited high-speed internet, which of course is super important with telehealth as you're you know, streaming and having these like video chats with health providers. The public health implication here is that telehealth is a critical method for sustaining healthcare operations in a safe way during the pandemic. But the fact that rural areas in the South face barriers to telehealth is an issue. One option for public health people, especially in rural areas in the South, is to conduct a needs assessment, figure out in their specific jurisdiction what exactly are the internet barriers, what exactly are the issues with the providers, and try to tailor public health efforts to maximize utilization of telehealth that way. Basically, figure out what the people need and try to give it to them so that they can use telehealth. Article 4, Vaccines in Medicare Beneficiaries, aka Vaccines in Elderly People. Did they decrease during the pandemic? The answer is yes. And we're talking about routine adult vaccines here. So, you know when you're a kid and you get vaccinated for like measles and hepatitis and all those things? Well, you also need to get a series of vaccines as an adult. And in this study, Hong and colleagues found a decline in the rates of these routine vaccinations for adults over 65 on Medicare. And so the timeline kind of went like this. The pandemic became an emergency in March. And then a week later, vaccines decreased by up to 62%, just a week after the pandemic was declared an emergency, which makes sense. And then by mid-April, vaccines went down by 70 to 89%. Then, from May to July, vaccination rates in Medicare recipients started to recover, but they still stayed lower than the corresponding 2019 rates. But incredibly important context here, at the beginning of the pandemic, the CDC formally recommended that routine adult vaccinations get postponed, and then they revised this guidance in October of 2020 to say that immunizations should resume, but that's probably one of the reasons why vaccinations decreased in Medicare recipients. Public health implication here is that vaccines are necessary to protect a person's health. And so the onus is now on the federal government and vaccine providers to ensure and communicate 
to especially the elderly population, but to the public at large, that vaccines are important and they can be delivered safely amidst this pandemic. Article 5, we're talking about hazard controls, which, at least in this article, hazard control is an umbrella term for things like physical barriers, cloth masks, and other PPE that can help reduce COVID transmission, specifically in the workplace. All right, so Billick and colleagues evaluated national survey data from OSHA, and they found that about half of non-healthcare workers used hazard controls in the workplace, and about 55% of them reported that hazard controls were actually required by their employer, meaning 45% of them said that their employers didn't require hazard controls, which is crazy. The research team also found that use of hazard controls was 22% higher in workers whose employers provided them hazard controls compared to workers who were not provided any sort of hazard control. Now it's time for the public health implication, which is that employers should be protecting their workers against COVID by A, requiring hazard control use, B, encouraging hazard control use, and C, providing the recommended hazard controls, which again are pretty much just masks, PPE, and physical barriers. The last article of this episode, Article 6, we are asking the question, how the heck are we supposed to be wearing masks? First of all, cloth masks and surgical masks fit more loosely than things like N95 respirators, but not everyone's wearing N95 respirators. Lots of people are wearing cloth masks and surgical masks, the things that don't fit as well. So Brooks and colleagues decided to test whether cloth and surgical masks could be improved to block more respiratory droplets. In a nutshell, this study basically simulated coughs and measured how many respiratory particles each type of mask blocked. Just for fun, we're going to call this study the Battle of the Block. And the three contenders in this study were a surgical mask, a double mask, so surgical on bottom and cloth on top, and a knotted surgical mask where they tied a knot in the ear loops towards the base of the surgical mask and then either tucked in or flattened the mask material close to the face. So who won the Battle of the Block? The double mask actually blocked the most particles at 85%. But the knotted mask was not a bad second place. It was about 10 to 20% worse than the double mask. And surgical masks and cloth masks alone performed the worst. They only blocked about 50% of particles. Implication time. This article tells us that in order to maximize their effectiveness, masks need to fit your face. And so you can help make your mask fit better by either double masking or knotting the ear loops in your mask, or even buying a mask fitter, which, yes, is a thing. And that is it for this week's recap. If you want to learn more about any of the studies I discussed today, you can find the actual Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report online on the CDC's website. If you haven't already, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow our Instagram at mmwrecap. And have yourself a lovely week.